Simple Beep, episode 78, Apple Audio. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany. And I'm Brian Satorius. And our topic this episode is a category of Apple products that we may have touched on occasionally in the past, but haven't done a comprehensive show on. And that is speakers and Apple's audio products of various sorts. But before we get to our topic, we have a little bit of follow-up and a little bit of news. This is not usually a news and follow-up segment, mostly because what qualifies as news that actually fits our topics is a very small, small category. But this one fits squarely in it. So uh, you may have seen this on our Twitter feed or other people in the Classic Mac community have noted that uh, the Macintosh Garden, which we link to practically every episode, at least every episode that we talk about software, so maybe not this episode, uh, but they're a huge resource for uh, abandonware, classic Macintosh software. And we've always wondered, like, what would happen if Macintosh Garden went away? Because it's our go-to for, like, oh, we need... Word four, like you just go there and you type in word four and you download a .sit archive and there it is. Uh, so what would happen if it went away? It would be a, a huge loss to our community. Great news, though. All of Macintosh Garden has been backed up and mirrored at the Internet Archive, and we will link to both the original and the mirror in the show notes for this episode. But this is really great. I think they said that it was over over four gigabytes of classic Mac software, which doesn't sound like a lot in the modern era where each new app update on your iPhone is 300 megs. But this is hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of classic Mac titles that are very hard to find anywhere else. And now we have a second location for them, which is really, really good news. Thank you to everyone involved in getting that done. I've always said that Sometimes when you uh, when you load up Macintosh Garden and run a search, it it could be a little bit pokey, and it's like, oh no, oh no, this is being run on a Quadra somewhere, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, is actually very fragile. the The Internet Archive, I think, also behaves the same way. Frequently, when you run a search or do something there, it behaves a little bit slowly. But that's because they are this like cold storage archive repository, and they're like, no, hang on, I have to go find that for you. Uh, performance is not their primary function. It is stability and maintaining those archives. And I'm glad that Macintosh Garden has landed there as well. And a little bit to that point, the experience of browsing for a specific application or game software at the Internet Archive is not as nice as at the Macintosh Garden, if only because um, on the Internet Archive, they have like discrete bundles of every non-game application from the Macintosh Garden that started with the letter A, uh, every game application start with the letter A, and so on through Z. Uh, so you can't, it, there's not a, a unique listing at the Internet Archive for every single one of those uh, hundreds of thousands of software applications. So yeah, this really is a uh, in-case-of-emergency-break-glass-and-reconstitute-Macintosh-Garden <laughs> I'll be primarily going to the Macintosh Garden still. Hopefully they can stay up as long as uh, as long as the internet exists. Why not? Yeah, but if you're the kind of person who is a total classic Mac 
pack rat kind of person who's like, I've got space on my Drobo and I would like to put every piece of classic Macintosh software on there, then getting these in these bundles from the Internet Archive is actually going to enable you to do something that would have been, well, if not impossible, would have probably involved lots of web scraping and putting an overburden on Macintosh Garden, uh, actually making it more fragile than than it was with just a couple people searching here and there. Um, so this is a good resource either way. And now in a transition from current events to actual follow-up, uh, our previous episode was about word processors on the classic Mac. And right around the time that we released the talk show released an episode where John Gruber talked with Jason Snell. It's episode 238, and there's a nice section in the middle about Microsoft Word version 6, which uh, may or may not be the canonical last great version. I thought 6 was the, the Windowsy one. Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, it's hard to keep these things straight. Another piece of follow-up from listener Eric Schwartz, who wrote to us on Twitter. Uh, we had mentioned that there were some small desk accessory applications turned into full-fledged applications um, with the help of a small company called Light Software, which may or may not have been some kind of side project or subsidiary of Apple Computer. And we had pointed out that in their uh, About This Application dialog boxes, there was a mention of an Apple link uh, link <laughs> to find out more about the Light Software company. And we Or like an address. It almost looked like an email address. Yes, exactly. And uh, we didn't have any idea of what the Apple link uh, entity was. And Eric wrote to us to point out that Apple Link was an Apple-run online service before eWorld. It was first for internal use for Apple, for dealers, and so on, but later open for consumers. And fun fact, the consumer edition eventually became America Online. Through some, I think, convoluted paths. It wasn't like there was an actual piece of software that was Apple Link that looked like AOL, and then it became AOL. It's like the technology and the parent company got folded through a series of acquisitions uh, and renamings to the point that they were America Online. Which, of course, was uh, very successful. And we talked about in our early episode, early internet episode, along with eWorld. So we, we were close. We just didn't know how close we were. Mm-hmm. Last piece of follow-up, also on word processors. Uh, we didn't know how far we were. <laughs> Great feedback from listener Jim Wong, who told us everything that we got wrong about MacWrite because we never used MacWrite. So he writes, first, as far as I know, Claris wasn't even a twinkle in Apple executives' eye at the time that MacWrite was written. MacWrite development ran concurrently with the development of the Mac and was run by a team led by Randy Wigginton, a former Apple employee, and Claris wasn't formed until 1987. Now, for the fun part, second, MacWrite versions 2.2 to 5.0 preceded the release of MacWrite 2, Roman numeral 2 which was effectively an entirely new application with totally different source code. In hindsight, the version numbers don't seem to make a lot of sense, but at the time there was a clear break from the older versions of MacWrite and the new slicker MacWrite 2. So, yes, absolutely confusing. I mean, just thinking back, obviously I didn't know about this. I didn't know about it at the time. But there must have been a point there where, because there weren't huge gaps in years between the other versions of MacWrite. There must have been a point where you had to ask someone, hey, what version of MacWrite do you have? And if they said two, you had to get further explanation whether they meant 
Arabic numeral two or Roman numeral two. This is this is bad even by traditional Apple naming standards. This would be like if this past year Apple had re- released the iPhone 10 one zero, and then you had to figure out whether you had a 10 or a 10. <laughs> so yeah, sorry for the confusion on MacWrite, and thank you, Jim, for the significant clarification. And now onto this episode's topic about Apple Audio. The reason that we are doing this topic on this episode is because it was just brought to mind for us. Uh, A lot of the times, you know, if you've been listening, you know that that's because of some news story that happens or some anniversary that happens. But this was more of a personal story for me. So I was visiting my parents over the holidays, over New Year's, and they said, you know, as always happens when you go back to your parents' house, especially if they're going through things, they're like, ah, we have things that you need to do. And one of those was, oh, there's this pile of stuff in the basement, and we want you to look through it before we get rid of any of it. And a lot of it was old Apple stuff. And some of this stuff I thought was already gone from my parents' house. And one of the things that was down there was a box that had a set of speakers in it. And it was the Apple design-powered speakers. And everything was in there. The box was original, had all of the cables. They're basically standard speakers that you can hook up to anything. I'm like, wow, these are still really good speakers. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, this is an area that we have not explored at all. Uh, We've talked about some kind of Apple peripherals, and we've talked about accessories that have gone with later Macs, like the the candy-colored iMacs and those sorts of things. But we haven't talked about... Apple's history with audio hardware. And since it was specifically these speakers that I saw, I think we're going to limit it to speakers both that are built into products and that are standalone. And one category that we'll leave to maybe another date is anything that you put in or on your ears. So there are obviously all kinds of earbuds and pods and Beats products and stuff that we're just going to leave to the side for today. But for now, we're going to talk about the speakers that have made the sounds of the classic Mac and uh, all the way up to the present. Uh, things that are the Mac and iOS and what is it actually called on the HomePod? Sound OS? Something like that? God, I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, it's got its own OS. Who knew? Um, so that is our topic for today. So as we like to do, we're going to rewind it all the way back to the beginning. Uh, In this case, I think it's actually good to go all the way back to the Apple II and the transition from the Apple II to the Mac. Um, So thinking back to the Apple II, of course, I remember the Apple II having sound. I remember playing games on the Apple II and there being some distinctive sounds that went with them. Uh, but they were in sort of the the bleeps and bloops genre of things. And there's a good reason for that, uh, which I found out in researching this, is one of the main differences between the Apple II and the original Mac is the type of speaker support that the Apple II had. It had what was called a one-bit speaker, literally on or off. So I, I presume if you just told the speaker to be on all the time, it would make some bad noise, like, you know, basically line noise, static. 
And so any fancy sound that you tried to make with an Apple II speaker that didn't have some additional sound card or sound support, it all had to be done in software, and you basically had to write your own synthesizer. So the tricks of how perception of sound works in the human brain, if you take that thing that makes a bad noise and you turn it on and off really fast, you can essentially make a high-frequency sound, which has a pitch. Uh, And so you could create these different tones in software on the Apple II. And that's, I mean, I kind of remember that, where any, especially any low-pitch sound in an Apple II game really had this, like, degraded quality to it, where, like, the higher pitches were not exactly exactly a mellow tone, (laughs) They were sort of more cohesive than if, you know, you died in a video game and it played like a low tone, um, that it was really like, <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it was a bad sound. Um, and I think that stems back to this, this one bit nature of the sound. So like the, the less frequently that you turn the speaker on and off, the more noise you're, you're putting into it while it's on. This all changed though with the Macintosh and that also led to things like uh, things that we've talked about in anecdotes before, like the uh, the litigation between Apple Computer and Apple Core uh, Recording Studio, and the fact that the original Mac was getting much closer to being able to actually reproduce music. And this was part of the hardware as well. So as opposed to the one-bit speaker of the Apple II, the original Mac had an eight-bit speaker. Um, some fun things, one that we've mentioned before, um, is about ways to perhaps improve the tone of that speaker. Yeah, there's a great article on folklore.org about, uh, one of the engineers on the Mac project, Charlie Kellner, who had also worked on the Apple, like Apple II, uh, hardware as well. Um, while they were messing around with some of the, uh, 8-bit sounds to include with this new Macintosh, uh, he realized that if he cut a small dime-sized hole in the actual case of the product uh, for whatever sound uh, acoustic engineering reasons, um, the, the finished product would sound a lot better. Naturally, when this was shown to Steve Jobs, uh, <laughs> as it says in this folklore article, he said that the improvement was not good enough to warrant an unsightly hole in the Macintosh case, and it never made it to production um, another thing worth pointing out from this folklore article is that Charlie Kellner also wrote one of those synthesizers for the one bit Apple II speaker, which is called Alpha Centauri, as in like synthesize. It's a pun with stars and synthesizers, and that's really nerdy, and I love it. <laughs> so yeah, the, all of this kind of comes together as uh, as these early Apple desktop computers are finding their footing in the sound world. I'm sitting here uh, listening to you talking about punching holes in the case, and my iPhone 10 is sitting on the desk, and I see its nice 10 symmetrical holes, and then I think about the 10s that has its eight asymmetrical holes, and whether that design would have gotten vetoed by Steve Jobs, or whether the fact that uh, the antennas are superior or is the kind of thing where it's like, well, it doesn't matter, you know, it has to have the functionality. <laughs> Regardless, back to the original 128K, um, yeah, they didn't put the hole in the case, but they still had a good quality speaker in there, and then they needed a means of driving it that was 
uh, man, you know, so many of those folklore stories are about kind of the glorious hacks that went on, especially in the Macintosh team, to get so much power working in such tight constraints in terms of the hardware. Uh, and I did not know this, but the sound playback was definitely one of these. It's it's a brilliant hack. There was no separate uh, sound and video. And I don't mean this in terms of like a, a video file, right? This is like pre-QuickTime. There are no movies. The only video that we're talking about here is video output to the built-in screen. And apparently the way that sound worked and was synthesized in the hardware of the original Mac was that it was effectively a video hack so that um, sound was video. Uh, So the description says that uh, the sound engine piggybacked on the video circuit. And so the, the video is drawing pixels to the screen with a raster scan. And every time that it gets to the end of the line, it would actually write additional information and that would be interpreted as the audio. Uh, and because of the way that it all lined up, it provided 8-bit sampled mono audio at 22.25 kilohertz, just because of the way that the math worked out. But to put this in kind of more concrete terms, basically every sound that the original Mac played was invisible pixels that were off the right edge of the screen. Which is so cool to think about. Right. And to think that, like, if you emulated that in a particular way, that you would, like, see, (laughs) you would see data, like, static almost, because it, you know, it wouldn't look uh, interpretable to, to our eyes, but you would see this, you know, flashing noise off to the right side of the screen if you had the additional pixels. And that was all of the sound that was being played. I I guess, you know, if, uh, if there was total silence, it would either be all black or all white depending. Like you said, it's one of these mini hacks that's like they had the the very confined amount of resources to work with and some of the stuff that they came up with, including this, to kind of get this this one channel for audio visuals uh, so that, you know, other bandwidth pipes could be left for processing uh, is just so cool. And that was literally the reason was that um, the way that RAM was divided, the 128 kilobits of RAM (laughs) were divided up on the original Mac. Uh, There were separate zones for the AV and for basically system memory. And the CPU could only, like the, the computer could only access one at a time. So anything that you were doing that was tying up the the drawing to the screen also meant that you couldn't do other things or they had to alternate um which is also just you know another wild constraint it's it, it's amazing that it worked uh as well as it did <laughs> and of course apple made improvements both in the operating system software uh and the the, the actual speaker hardware to its Macintosh line. And those resource constraints, uh, you know, it, it tended to evaporate with Moore's Law. Exactly. Uh, so we don't need to talk about every minute upgrade to the hardware speakers that were built into Apple Macintosh systems. And we just want to highlight for the rest of this section uh, a couple of the ones that were special. And I think the 
following the original Mac, which as we just found out was a, a, a feat of engineering, the next truly special built-in speaker system came with the 20th anniversary Macintosh, which uh, had two built-in stereo speakers flanking that uh, vertical flat panel design, as well as a separate subwoofer. And they were uh, very blatantly co-branded as Bose speakers, uh, Bose audio parts. And uh, obviously, I have never really encountered one of these 20th anniversary Macintoshes. They were very rare. But in uh, going back to find out what we could about uh, the speakers specifically, it seems that they were a point of contention for the few people who owned them because it was probably another kind of hacky way to incorporate all of these things. The kind of uh, tweeters that were built into the unit itself were specifically Bose Jewel speakers. Um, I don't know if that means anything to any particular brand enthusiasts. But uh, the way that everything was wired up in this pseudo all-in-one computer uh, <laughs> depended on one single quote-unquote umbilical cord. And uh, there was also a cord that ran out to the separate subwoofer. And apparently, according to the Wikipedia article <laughs> for the 20th anniversary Macintosh, there could be some uh, corrosion or or even just like a speck of dust in these umbilical cords in such a way that it would affect the actual sound output and a uh, um, frequent speaker buzz when nothing was supposed to be coming out, but because something is shorting or otherwise making connections in this giant obscure umbilical cord where it shouldn't be, the uh, the very fancy Bose system would still make kind of fuzzy noise. Thinking of Bose around this time, the thing that immediately sprung to mind for me was those Bose wave radio mm -hmm. systems that you would put like on a kitchen counter or in a bedroom and they were like the best FM radio of, of the mid nineties sort of when, mid to late nineties when the, when the TAM was being released. And uh, I looked that up and the, the radio ones came a, a little bit later, but the first products in that Bose product series actually came out in 1984. So it's a odd little bit of uh, products lining up there. Another uh, all-in-one Mac that got the benefit of co-branded built-in speakers was the second major revision of the G3 iMac, which of course we have covered at length on this show. And so we've we've talked about this before, but uh, the two small stereo speakers that were in the original iMac got a big boost when it got uh, the redesign with a slot-loading CD drive and uh, the the case redesign that was more translucent. And these were co-branded with Harman Kardon. And uh, the two, each individual speaker on either side of the CD drive was one of Harman Kardon's Odyssey speakers. And these will come into play both later in this episode and in this general era of Apple speakers. You may recognize them uh, stacked four on top of each other in each of Harman Kardon's sound sticks and uh, in other products that we'll talk about shortly. Yeah, I guess the uh, first couple generations of the iMac G3 just had, you know, whatever speakers we found in China. Right. We'll put two of them in. <laughs> Didn't they also have two uh, two headphone ports at one point? They did. The original one, I think for like educational contexts, had two headphone jacks. For your like, you know, paired programming exercises in middle school or something. <laughs> and finally... In this section about built-in internal speakers on Apple hardware, 
uh, you do have to think about some of the handheld devices that Apple has come out with. And we won't talk about iPhones here because literally every iPhone has had to have uh, built-in speakers to function as a phone that you hold up to your ear. And of course, they've gotten louder and better uh, as the years go on. So for devices that are more in line with our show, uh, you have to talk about the Newton, which um, every Newton message pad and the Emates all had uh, one pretty rudimentary speaker. Um, in my limited research to find out uh, specifically about the speakers, I couldn't find anything remarkable uh, either in the positive or the negative. So I think you can, can just take it at that. Uh, you were definitely not listening to any kind of media through the Newton's built-in speaker. That's for sure. But one uh, piece of Apple hardware that is synonymous with listening to music had what was at least to me a surprise internal speaker. And that is, of course, the the classic line of iPods, the pre-touch iPods. Um, obviously, when uh, the click wheel became a solid state, which was from the second generation on, you had to have some kind of uh, feedback to let you know that you were actually scrolling. And there was a software option to produce a little click sound for, you know, like every line that you scrolled with the click wheel. And this actually came out of some like microscopic speaker somewhere on the logic board deep within the iPod hardware. Just like a single pinhole somewhere. That I think must have fired out of the dot connector or firewire port, you know, like whatever the the potential egresses were. Um, The big surprise to me was uh, once the iPod software got a little more advanced and you could have things like your calendar and your contacts Um, You could also set an alarm. And I think most people probably would dock their iPod into some kind of speaker and have their alarm start playing music from a playlist on the iPod through the speaker. The iPod could not play any of its music through the internal speaker, but there was an option to play a kind of standard alarm tone, which did play through the iPod speaker. So I fired up my third generation iPod with its you know, one-off red buttons and uh, recorded what that alarm sounded like here. It's pretty obnoxious. (laughs) It would wake you up, that's for sure. But yeah, as you said, those iPods did not have the ability to play their actual stored music out of that or any other speaker. And presumably that was a space and battery consideration, right? Uh, Even today on iOS devices, one of the quickest ways to drain their batteries is to play loud music out of the speakers or podcasts or whatever, uh, because you're creating energy, right? <laughs> Sound is energy. You have to physically move the air with energy. And where does that come from? It comes from the battery. <laughs> One other thing, I guess, about modern iPhones that's uh, kind of like a speaker is the Taptic engine in modern iPhones. It was discovered... I think shortly after support for it was given out to developers, that it is literally a speaker without a soundboard, um, or that, you know, sort of the whole phone itself is the soundboard, and that the way that it produces different types of taps and clicks is not through something like the Apple II where you say, ah, synthesize clicks in this exact pattern. It's like, no, just give it a sound file. It can play any sound file. Uh, And so 
in theory, you could like you could write an iOS app that would just send like music files to the Taptic engine and they would just play very quiet vibrations that uh, you might be able to discern some aspects of that music, but it would be the world's lowest fidelity speaker. I did not know that. And that is really cool to find out because I'm starting to dabble uh, with Swift programming. And there are three like presets to, to call a Taptic engine vibration that are like basically light, medium and heavy. And I've always wondered like, <laughs> are, are the people who put in very intricate vibration patterns into their apps uh, just doing like a sequence of these light taps or apparently they're they're writing kind of custom quote unquote music for it. That's very cool. There are system ones that Apple encourages you to use if it's just for interface feedback. Mm-hmm. But I think it's in the context of like if you're developing a game, say you have a game where you have like a laser weapon and you can push down and it you know fires for an arbitrary length of time instead of saying how am i possibly going to uh sync up some sort of effect for this uh with the action they say just play a sound and if the mute switch is if the mute switch is off just play it through the speaker and if the mute switch is on just play it only through the taptic engine very cool okay that's enough about internal speakers let's move on to the, the real heart of this episode, the external speakers that Apple has made, which we'll, be, we'll see you can kind of count on one hand. And really, the first of them are those speakers that I found in my parents' basement, the Apple Design Powered Speakers 1. Um, I mean, they weren't called 1 when they launched, but there's 2. It's coming, so uh, to differentiate them. So these are what you would think of if if you pretty much thought computer speakers from the 90s, where you would have a desktop computer, whether it was a tower or a flat case, and monitor, and you wanted good speakers, you would put you know a left and a right speaker on either side of your monitor. And that was very much how they were shown in marketing images. Um, you know, maybe eight to ten inches tall, four or five inches wide, big speaker grill and a couple controls on the front. Um, and a really classy design. I mean, that's in the name of them. They are the Apple Design Speakers. And that was a whole philosophy of design that was cultivated, laid out in a in a book at Apple in the early 90s. This was basically the successor, the codified successor to like the Snow White design language. And we can also think of it as uh, a predecessor to the Johnny Ive School of Design that happened from 1997 onward. And I think that's an important thing to mention because it's not like Johnny Ive came in uh, after the next acquisition and said, your design is garbage. You've made ugly beige boxes. Turn it on its head. Like, yes, he got rid of the beige, but like there was still a sparseness and a design language that persisted at Apple through the 90s, in spite of some of the other things that were going on. So I found a, an article in Macworld that we'll link to that mentions the launch of these speakers in May of 1993. Other things that were in the like front of the magazine news section at that time, uh, first of all, the speakers were in an article called Apple Launches Three More Performas, which, yep. <laughs> 
uh, fast SCSI 2 array and quote, Apple script almost real <laughs> because it didn't exist yet. <laughs> so this is the era in which these speakers were released and the kind of design climate and product climate that they were put into. These were speakers to go with your performa. And to that end, they were uh, kind of industry standard. Like I said, the beige casing, um, platinum, sure. You know, it, it certainly matched uh, the desktops that Apple was selling at the time. Had standard connectors, RCA audio in, uh, a headphone port out, a uh, separate power adapter, hence powered speakers. Uh, and that was it. Great pair of little speakers. Um, these launched at the price of $179 for the pair of two speakers, which, um, yeah, that sounds like Apple's current pricing, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. But, you know, to think that, yes, uh, if you were buying these to go, basically any peripheral that was going with a desktop computer at that time was going to be pretty expensive. They came down in price, uh, very quickly. Uh, especially as their successor was then released. Um, by 1995, they were on clearance for 59 bucks. Uh, there was an ad in the back of Macworld then, which, my gosh, I found this. This is also on the Internet Archive. That Macworld was 300 pages that month, and there were like 50 pages of ads at the end. It was like the heyday. And here it is, uh, the ad copy. Uh, $59, Apple design-powered speakers. That's right, just 59 bucks for the good stuff. Don't settle for cheap imitations. Good has a capital G, too. Good stuff. And is bold. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, there is truth to that, because we bought that pair of speakers with our first Mac in 1994, and we kept them also with our Power Macintosh G3 all the way until we replaced it with an iMac G4, and then we put them back in the original box and pull you pull them out today and they're perfectly good speakers. Like they don't fit the design aesthetic now. Like I'm not I'm not gonna hook them up to my retina iMac because there's not much gained by doing that. Uh but they are still fully functioning standard hardware. And you know I think maybe this is a good transition to what you're going to talk about now, Brian, which is this is in the era where Apple was, for anything that was peripheral, they were trying to source like the best parts. This is like when Apple was releasing monitors with Sony Trinitron technology in them when that was the best, because we definitely had a Trinitron monitor that we also bought at the same time as the Apple design-powered speakers. There were a couple lines of monitors, which is something I forgot. Yeah, did you know that Apple used to make monitors? <laughs> Sore subject in 2019. And some were clearly uh, designed with the kind of uh, desktop publishing market in mind. Others were for more performa or, you know, like home consumer use. And there are a couple lines of Apple monitors that had built-in speakers. But we'll put them here because they you still have to plug them in as, as an external speaker unit to your desktop Macintosh. And the first chronologically was the Apple AudioVision 14. And we have mentioned this specific monitor on our show before because we did our episode 50 about legacy input and output. Oh, right. This is a weird outlier, isn't it? This is it. This is the one monitor uh, and really the one peripheral that ever used the HDI-45 connector slash cable. 
And um, it's kind of a, in a precursor to the ADC connector, which carried your audio signal, your video signal, um, in this case, ADB, but in later cases, USB. And also that unfortunate thing that was hooked up to the 20th anniversary Mac. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the umbilical, right. And so uh, this is a monitor. We'll put links to all of these um, at from everymac.com in the show notes. This is a monitor that has a, a pretty standard 14-inch CRT, um, but then below it are kind of uh, like cutouts for speaker grills, uh, two small stereo speaker units, but they kind of bulge in the middle to really show you where the speaker cones are you know, hiding beneath the surface, as well as some like brightness and contrast and volume controls, hardware controls. And they're, they're angled up so that it can like pump the music into your face. <laughs> right. Um, and so this, this AudioVision 14 display was, as far as I can tell, a one-off in the AudioVision line. Um, it was released in 1993. And pretty quickly afterward, Apple moved on to the multiple scan line of monitors, which had a 14-inch uh, a model and a 15-inch model, both of which were just called like multiple scan 14, multiple scan 15 but they had built-in speakers. And I know that in our house, when we had the Performa 6100 series, it came bundled with the multiple scan 15. And I'm 99% sure that you just ran a uh, like a headphone plug to headphone plug from audio out on the Mac to audio in on the back of the monitor. It was that easy. Even when preparing this episode, I had not thought about that. That's like such not a concern that I've had with any computer for so long. <laughs> yeah, it was it was part of the um the marketing for the original iMac with the simplicity shootout that part of what added to cable clutter for a typical PC home desktop was that you had speaker wires like in the case of the Apple design you had a, a wire to the left unit, a wire to the right unit and a wire going to the power outlet. Yeah, I think the way that they actually worked that's a good point though. Um, was that one of the speakers was like the master and the other was the satellite. And the master speaker had the connection to power. It also had the power button and volume controls on it. I think it was the left speaker. Um, but I think you could actually switch it in software, which was which, because, you know, your your cabling needs might be different. Um, and then the other speaker uh, only connected to the main speaker. So it only passed, um, well, I guess it passed along both audio and the power somehow. So yeah, these multiple scan 14 and 15 inch monitors are pretty unremarkable. Like they just look like monitors and the sound was kind of firing out of the vents in the sides, which were there to also help with the uh, passive cooling of the hot CRT tube. <laughs> but there's also in the multiple scan line, the 15 AV 15, of course, being it's a, uh, it's like marketing size, but uh, this one had giant speaker grills flanking the entire left and right margins. It's AV with, with emphasis on the A. I heard you needed more A. Who's to say whether it actually sounded any different, especially at higher volumes that it's giant speaker grills would imply, but uh, it was worth at least a different product designation. Well, this is like you were saying that, you know, over the history of the iPhone, the speakers have gotten bigger and better. And or, you know, or the the iPad for that matter, where it's like we put more speakers in it. And um 
And when they announce that, everyone kind of goes, ah, yeah, whatever. And then they get them in their hands and they're like, there's more sound here. Um, So it probably did have a measurable effect. And then finally, there was another line um, kind of at the end of the the platinum design, the Apple design language of Apple Vision monitors, which were later branded color sync monitors. And I think I saw somewhere, maybe in Wikipedia, that it was Apple just thought like, that was a better name to appropriately convey the, like the professional level of their color reproduction. A name which still exists, by the way. Color sync utility. It's on your Mac right now. <laughs> And uh, there were three models that had this AV uh, as part of their name, which means they all included speakers. And these go back to that uh, AudioVision 14, where it's two separate speakers kind of on the chin of the monitor angled back up towards you. And then, uh, of course, Apple kept releasing a bunch of monitors um, as we got into the, the Yosemite G3 tower and the Graphite G4 towers, there were... Uh, appropriately color-matched CRTs, and then moving on into the flat-screen cinema displays, uh, and even that one glorious final uh, translucent CRT display that we've talked about on the show. Um, But none of those had built-in speakers, uh, and we'll get into some of the reasons why later in this section. Um, And then more recently, but not recent enough, as Ed alluded to before, Apple went back to some external monitors that were driven by Mini DisplayPort or Thunderbolt that had <laughs> 2.1 speaker systems in it, the two tweeters and a woofer, all in like firing out of the uh, the bottom edge of the monitor. So I'm sure a lot of uh, like modern open floor plan workplaces have a bunch of these still sitting around. I've never used one. I'm sure they sound okay. That'll be an interesting consideration if and when Apple makes another monitor and a new Mac Pro. This is one of the things that has been a hallmark of the Macintosh line, is that every Mac from the very first one has had a built-in speaker that is, by Apple standards, sufficient for doing the things that were relevant to that era of computing. Um, And I guess that means that the trash can has a speaker in it somewhere. But I've never heard one. (laughs) <laughs> and I, I suppose that, you know, less emphasis on it is necessary because if you are buying a top-of-the-line Pro Mac uh, and you care one iota about what it sounds like, you're going to plug something else into it, whether it's uh, whether it's speakers or headphones. Yep. Let's stay in, in the early to mid-90s, though, and return to the Apple Design series. Uh, so shortly after the original speakers that my family had, came the Apple Design Powered Speakers 2, which were introduced just a year later in 1994. And this was around the time of the first Power Max. Interestingly, we got the the ones rather than the twos, even though when we bought that Mac, uh, I think both should have been available. And perhaps the thing was that the Powered Speakers 2 were a different design. They were considerably smaller and cheaper at $79 instead of $179. So I'm guessing that for us to have actually sprung for the additional $100 in 1994 dollars between those two speakers, there must have been, at least to a salesperson, some perceived difference in sound quality. So when we bought our Power Mac, everything was a la carte. Right. It wasn't a Performa. (laughs) It was not a Performa. It was a Power Macintosh, and you had to buy the monitor separately, speakers separately. The only things that came with it 
were, you know, the main box, keyboard, and mouse. And the ways that speakers were sold were either in, in that totally a la carte setting, or Apple also created some bundles. So the uh, Powered Speakers 2 were also part of a bundle called the Apple Multimedia Kit. AV, multimedia, etc. right? It was 1994. <laughs> and this was a $449 bundle. Now there's your Apple pricing. <laughs> Which included uh, the speakers, an external CD-ROM drive for Macs that didn't have one built in. Um, you know, like the 6100 that we got was one of the first that had built in. Um, of course, you have to have something to put into that CD-ROM drive. So it came with Compton's Interactive Encyclopedia, uh, and a selection of other software. Uh, so that was one way that some people got their hands on the powered speakers too. Um, they came in two colors, um, classic Apple. It came in uh, silver and space gray. <laughs> <laughs> uh, more like platinum and dark gray. Uh, the, the second generation that came in the darker gray were designed to match the power books of that time uh and also a product that i'll get to in just a second the power cd um and i don't know i i think you would have to see them next to each other uh it might they might have also gone well with the black macintosh tv which came out later that year in october of 1994 but maybe the gray versus black case design would actually kind of clash not as bad as having a platinum set of speakers next to it, though. Right. But I mentioned the Power CD, and this is not strictly a speaker product, but it's an Apple Audio product that I think we have to talk about, and I don't think we've talked about in any detail on the show. This is one of those weird products in Apple's abortive attempts to get more into consumer electronics pre-iPod. I, we have talked about the Pippin. Right. Which, um, like the Power CD, and like, or I should say the Power CD, like the Pippin, was kind of rebranded hardware from another company. In this case, I think it was a Philips CD player. But unlike the Pippin, which basically, like, it sold under the Bandai name in Japan and things like that. Unlike that, the Power CD case, I think, was custom made by Apple because it looks very. Well, to be honest, it looks very like Knowledge Navigator. Um, this is maybe the closest piece of hardware to that concept that they ever actually released. Um, and then there was some sort of like prototype fax machine or something like that as well. Um, there's pictures of them in the iconic book. <laughs> um, but the Power CD was an interesting piece of consumer hardware. And it was released in early 1993. And its price tag, again, definitely Apple price tag, it was $499 for uh, for a CD-playing device. I guess the notion was that it was a multiple-use CD-playing device. So 1993 uh, CD home stereos were in existence and were priced very high, I'm sure. So it, this was sort of in line with that, saying, okay... You don't want to spring for a full home theater, or not home theater, but home stereo system. Uh, get this single-purpose CD player and hook it up to the best speakers you have in your house, and you can play audio CDs. And by the way, it can also do two other functions. Uh, it has a SCSI port on the back, 
So you can hook it up to a Mac, whether that's a portable Mac, which it's designed to match, or your desktop Mac that may not have a CD drive, and you could uh, you could view any Mac-compatible CD-ROM content. Or, here's the fun one, it also had connectors to hook it up to a TV. And the purpose of that was to show photo CDs, another technology that I had forgotten about. But remember when you would shoot a roll of film and take it to the drugstore and get the photos back, and it would always have an ad on it that's like, what if instead of these prints, you got your photos on a CD? And this was actually a standard format that Kodak was behind, and the Power CD supported it. Unfortunately, though, these three functions required three separate connections. <laughs> um, so if you wanted to do take advantage of all of these, you would have to sort of move it around to the various companion devices that would enable it. But that's okay, because Apple built it as portable. And I suppose it was. It was about three pounds, and it had an option that if you loaded six AA batteries in it, it could function without connection to a wall power unit. For how long, I'm not entirely sure. I'm guessing that it would at least get through a single audio CD. (laughs) (laughs) Otherwise, that utility would not be very useful. It came with a remote, I I, I noticed on its Wikipedia page. Oh, yes. And I I actually found a complete PDF of the user manual, which we'll link in the show notes. A couple of things on that. It does have a schematic of the remote, um, which has a as many buttons as 15 Apple TV remotes. (laughs) It had all of the buttons that you would use for programming a CD playlist. So right where you would put in one CD and then say, I want to play these particular songs in order. So it has program, store, insert, skip, a button called FTS, FPS, which I don't know what it does, and edit. Then a 10-digit keypad, and then all of your basic media playback controls. Uh, Pause, play, uh, previous track, next track, fast forward, rewind, stop, shuffle, repeat, reverse play, AMS, don't know what that is either, and autoplay. And then the bottom section of the remote, because remember it had these three functions, was completely dedicated to manipulating the video output for the photo CDs, so that you could actually zoom in and out on the photos and pan around them and even rotate them if they came on the CD in the wrong, uh, facing in the wrong direction. Because presumably on those CDs, they just scanned the film and didn't, you know, there was no auto rotation like we have in digital cameras that says, oh, this image, because I have a little accelerometer in me, was taken in portrait versus landscape. It actually had to have that feature built into the remote. It's the centerpiece of of your AV multimedia life. It could be. One thing that really bugs me about, you know, we talked about the design um, and that this is sort of a neat futuristic design on the device. So unlike a slot loading or tray loading CD drive, the entire power CD is built around the circle, which is where you know, the drive itself, where the CD goes in. But that's at 
it it's at a near vertical angle. It's like at the uh I want to watch a movie on my iPad angle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um except that would pop open for and you'd put the disc in and you would close it and there were physical buttons uh and a display for, you know, track readout and that kind of thing on the front of the device and it's a really good looking device except for the logo in the corner which says power cd um and i'm really baffled by this given all of apple's other design power is in apple garamond and then cd is in some sans serif font that is a different size than power so the top of the cnd do not even line up with the top of the P in power. It is a very bad logo. <laughs> it's probably a Gil Sands. It does look like a light Gil Sands, actually. Yeah, that's atrocious. Let's move on, though, from the from the Power CD and its bad, some of its aspects of bad design, to uh, Apple speakers that I think are universally loved as having a great design. And these are the Apple Pro speakers, which you alluded to a little bit earlier, Brian. These are external uh, individual units of the Harman Kardon Odyssey speaker cones that were in the second revision of the iMac G3. But it's how they were designed and uh, structured that really made them stand out. So the design of these speakers is that they are like two truncated orbs that you would place on either side of your iMac G4, to be honest. They were bundled with most of them. And the aesthetic really worked because you had the hemisphere main unit of the iMac, and then you had these almost hemispheres, they were a little bit more than that, um, of the two Harman Kardon, well, Apple Harman Kardon speakers. Um, And they had the transparent plastic uh, kind of design of like the G4 cube and the same kind of thing where the speaker cone itself almost looked suspended in midair the same way as the G4 cube has that little band of plastic around the bottom that makes it look like it's suspended in midair. Um, one of the interesting things here, we were talking about prices. Prices kept coming down. Apparently, the Apple Pro speakers, if you didn't get them bundled, with your iMac G4 were just $59, which is a really good deal. But here's the problem. If you didn't get them with your iMac G4, even if you spent 60 bucks for them, probably you couldn't use them <laughs> because these speakers were also powered speakers, although it wasn't in the name. Um, and they were powered over a proprietary connector that delivered both the sound and the power to the two speakers. And it looks like just a mini plug, stereo mini plug. If you look at it and then you go, oh no, it's a little bit longer. Maybe it's like one of those um, plain talk microphone kind of connectors. That's fine. You can just adapt one of those to a normal uh, normal mini plug with a little, you know, well, with a dongle. <laughs> Um, but no, because of this unique power delivery mechanism that basically only the iMac G4 and maybe a couple other G4s of the era. Yeah, I think some of the graphite G4 towers had this special plug uh, alongside a regular um, headphone jack in the back. And the G4 Cube had a an itty bitty uh, like 
amplifier, a DAC, that was a little black unit that I think went into the cube via USB and then could, uh, on the other end of it, had this port to support the pro speakers. Well, if you had one of those, you might still be able to use them. This came up because also in my parents' basement is a pair of Apple Pro speakers. <laughs> they still have the the iMac G4 that it went with, so they're not useless yet. But my dad's like, I would love to use these with our current iMac. Because unlike the previous speakers, these would look great next to a Retina iMac still today. Because they also have some of that, um, you know, sort of the uh, the brushed aluminum type of aesthetic to them. But it is very difficult or and or expensive to get them working with a modern Mac. Basically, unless unless the mythical uh, cube accessory that you mentioned, Brian, exists and you can get your hands on one of those, the only reliable adapter that lets these plug into practically any Mac is a product called the Griffin iFire, which adapted from this plug to FireWire 400, which then four more dongles to get that into your (laughs) USB-C port today. But it might work. (laughs) But these were apparently, apparently did not sell well at the time because either you bought a Mac that came with these speakers and you used them or you had a different Mac and you had other speakers and you didn't use them. And because of that, they're in very low supply today and these $60 speakers that you could have had back then, you now need, if, if you wanted to buy an iFire on eBay, they go for like $140, $150, $200 just for the dongle. And then you still have no guarantee that those speakers are going to actually work once you've taken them to Dongle Town. <laughs> so that's kind of an unfortunate end to Apple's uh, desktop computer standalone speakers there because... I think we can say that all three of the generations that they made were honestly good products at more and more competitive price points. Um, and if they had just had a little bit more foresight on the Apple Pro speakers, they could have been a longer lasting product. But who knows? They were probably selling them at a loss. So, um, I mean, they, you know, they probably made the margin on those with all the bundled ones. And so the ones that were left over, basically, um, they did just want to push out the door because there were so few Macs that could run them. They were, you know, they're kind of treated like replacement parts rather than uh, a genuine peripheral. Now let's wind down this episode with a couple mentions of Apple standalone audio products. Uh, No computer to plug into. Quite necessary. (laughs) For a long time, there was just one. And uh, it's the much maligned iPod Hi-Fi, which went on sale in February 2006 and sold so poorly that it was discontinued a year and a half later, September 2007. Mind you, in the height of iPod popularity. Absolutely. (laughs) A year and a half before the iPhone. (laughs) And um, I'm sure that people who are fans of our show and the kinds of things we talk about are well aware of the iPod Hi-Fi, so we don't need to go into too much detail um, I just want to point out uh, literal words that I, I watched the brief uh, like off-season keynote that, that introduced the iPod Hi-Fi. And here are the exact words that were uh, both spoken by Steve Jobs and on the, uh, the presentation behind him. 
Here are the iPod Hi-Fi's audio bona fides. <laughs> Two 80mm mid-range drivers in sealed acoustic suspension. One 130mm dual-voice coil woofer with ported bass reflex design, all in a sealed resin enclosure that does not vibrate. <laughs> Soft snoring comes from the back of Town Hall. <laughs> that was a Town Hall event, right? I think we covered it in that episode. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we, we make fun of the kind of flowery language, but I think people who reviewed, who actually bought and reviewed these units said that, yes, it sounded very, very good. It was just kind of, you know, the a product no one really was asking for, a, a kind of premium sounding thing that was hardwired. Well, I guess it had an, an aux import, but really just like hardwired for dock connector iPods, which was, you know... Even at the height of its market, with the benefit of hindsight, that's a limited market. Right. And it was designed to look like a boombox. Um, oh, wait, you could take it portable, couldn't you? Couldn't you load like eight C batteries in it or something? It was six D cell batteries. Yes. There you go. <laughs> you did mention, though, Brian, that it did have the aux in, uh, which means that they, unlike the Apple Pro speakers, they can still work today. Um, probably the most famous current iPod Hi-Fi user is Jason Snell, who talks about it somewhat frequently on his podcasts. Um, although if you listen to Upgrade somewhat recently, he was talking about how he has a complicated setup that gets it to turn off when he's not using it because it does produce a low buzzing noise. There's a decent amount of the keynote dedicated to how they minimize sound interference by like perfectly suspending all of the speaker uh, hardware in resin so that and and like providing places right for, it doesn't vibrate unless uh line noise is being passed to the speaker in which case it vibrates because that's how speakers work well but yes yeah, so the ipod hi-fi uh does carry a special place in a classic or ipod era apple enthusiast hearts um because yes they still work i think jason snell has rigged his last model unit airport express with airplay 2 to go into the oxen port of his ipod hi-fi so he basically has recreated the second and most recent and current standalone apple speaker the home pod which is uh just about to turn a year old um and by all accounts is has excellent speaker quality um, but similarly to some of the things that we've talked about, doesn't really have a whole lot of versatility in terms of getting audio into it. It is designed to be standalone, either in the single unit or in the stereo pair configuration, but there is infamously no line in. There is no way to get audio to it over Bluetooth, even though it has Bluetooth radios. Those are only for handshaking to devices. And so AirPlay and AirPlay 2 are the only way in. And that's kind of unfortunate because there are so many rave reviews about the quality of the sound that comes out of the HomePod. And uh, I'm sure it's a ways off because it's still a young product probably the first in a line of products that may evolve over years, but uh, probably 20, 25 years from now, someone is going to uh, say to their kid, hey, um, this Apple speaker in the basement, 
can I use it for anything? And the answer may well be no, because all of the means of getting audio into it, you know, the internet backend that lets it play things directly, and the AirPlay APIs that let it play indirectly will just be defunct by then. But as for now, uh, it's uh, far and away the best speaker that Apple has ever created, uh, and and shows that when they you know when they put their own engineering into it, they can still create really insanely great audio products, uh, and it's certainly not the last in the line. So if uh, if there's anything we missed in discussing the products that we did, or if we somehow missed a product entirely that fits into this classic Macintosh audio ecosystem, please let us know. Um, you can reach us at our website, simplebeep.com. There's a contact page there. Or you can talk to us on Twitter at simple underscore beep. You can also find each of us individually on Twitter. I'm at ecormany, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm at Bisuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.